On the Empire Podcast this week, Adam McKay, he's kind of a big deal, drops by to talk about the big short, plus usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that's currently just three books away from completing a reread of the complete Jack Reacher. And that's a whole lot of Reacher said nothings, let me tell you. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, welcome to the Empire Podcast this week, I'm joined by two colleagues of such lethal cunning. Uh, first up is Empire's features editor and banana guru, a man who loves every planet of the apes he sees, from chimpanzee to chimpanzee, uh, except for the rubbish one with Mark Wahlberg, obviously. It's Dan Jolin. How are you? Hey, good morning. I good love morning. you. I love you, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Uh, Dan, what? I'm revisiting Jack Reacher. Um, excellent. Um, what would you revisit? What, do you like to revisit things? What, what do you? Well, what actually, do you I, I, re- re-read? I, I, I revisited every Coen Brothers film uh, a couple of years ago. That was a really fun little mini season. I watched them all in order, including the ones I hate. How did you do it? Um, well, I got all the films on DVD or Blu-ray, um, and I had a DVD or Blu-ray player underneath my television. Did you watch them chronologically, or did you watch them in some sort of other weird order? I'm glad you interrupted me. I'm um, really glad I interrupted yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, no, chronologically. Uh, so began with Blood Simple and ended with Inside Lewin Davis. Excellent. Okay, good, good, good. Uh, also on the podcast this week is our junior Western Bacon Online writer, uh, a man who's only been in the podcast a couple of times, but he's already stunned half of Hollywood with his bile, rage, and infective. Who will he offend next? It's John Nice Guy Nugent. How are you? <laughs> Hello, yes. I think this is a bit of an unwarranted I reputation. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. You, I'm a nice you, guy. You I... tore savagely into John Favreau. <laughs> you ruined... I'm, I, it might have been Ron Howard. I think you ruined Ron Howard's career. I didn't ruin Ron Howard. one mighty swipe of your tongue. He did that on his own. That's not true. Sorry, Ron Howard. See, he's doing Sorry. it again. Sorry. He's doing it again. Sorry, are you <laughs> saying that Ron Howard wiped out his own career with a mighty swipe of his own tongue? Okay, let's move on. Uh, John, what do you revisit? Do you revisit anything? Um, are we talking books or films? Well, I'm rereading all the Reachers. I'm, I'm thinking it's, of you know. uh, revisiting Roald Dahl in preparation for the BFG. Um, he was one of my favourite authors as a kid, and... I think, you know, he's still very good. He's got some great adult books as well. Yeah, he's fantastic. I'm actually rereading the BFG at the moment. It's a classic. Re- reading it to my son. Yeah. Bedtime stories. There we go. Yeah. That's exciting. And uh, it was The Witches beforehand. So I'm I'm always revisiting Roald Dahl. Yeah. Uh, he's um, uh, uh, Boy and Going Solo. He's also mm. biographical books, which are kind of written for children, but also you could anyone could read them. They're, yeah. they're fantastic. Would you include in that the cookbooks written by his granddaughter, Sophie Dahl? Mm, yeah. Yes, sure. I Why wouldn't. Not? No, Dan. <laughs> I, I I don't recommend reading cookbooks as bedtime stories for children. Three hundred grams of flour. <laughs> Self-raising. I was raised on Delia Smith as a child. That was uh, really. Most of us were, were raised you, on food and were water. Were you self-raised on Delia Smith as a child? <laughs> oh dear. Oh, we don't have him on the pod often. I think he's just proved why. Uh, <laughs> Fantastic. Welcome both. A um, couple of things before we begin with this week's question from a reader. We have, hopefully, this hasn't happened yet, which is why I'm talking about it. Uh, we're going to have the first time in Empire's history an agony uncle, hopefully, fingers crossed, in the next issue of Empire. It is something I've been trying to make happen for a long, long time. Don't roll your eyes and go, oh, Empire, well, agony uncle, that's a stupid idea. Believe me, once you see this, It'll all make sense. Uh, it is an A-list. <laughs> it is an A-list agony uncle. A very famous actor has agreed to solve your problems, to tackle your crises, and bring to them his his 
his wisdom and his wit, and he's in no way actually qualified to do this. But it, it's all good. It's all good. So we need you to send in your problems. They can be film related. They can be I don't know how to alpha, you know, how to categorize my DVD collection. They can be personal. You know, I, I I'm torn between two two ladies in my life, and I don't know which one to choose. Help me this person and then this person will help you in the next issue so uh, do send in uh, your problems we will respect your confidentiality names will be changed to protect the innocent to podcast at empireonline.com and we will put the very the very best the most embarrassing problems to this A-list agony uncle this has the potential just on the basis of the title alone to be the best feature Empire has ever done in its don't history put, don't put too much pressure the on it the best John. feature ever well I was aiming for fourth best, but let's okay. see, see what happens. I killed someone yesterday and I don't know what to do with the body. That's a question. Mm. That is a good question uh, that Dan has hypothetically thrown in here. Mm. Um, although you do seem to be covered in blood. That's kind of weird. That sort of thing. And then this, this person will tackle your problems. Uh, also, very, very exciting. This is podcast 195. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say 195, which means our 200th podcast is coming up. And I think we can now officially announce that once again... We're going to go live in London at the end of February, February 24th. It's a Wednesday. Uh, We're going to be at the Prince Charles Cinema once again, as we were with our 100th podcast and with the Jackie Chan live podcast we did as well. Uh, Very, very excited to be going back to what is, apart from this grey dungeon in which we do the podcast every month, every week rather, uh, our spiritual home. So tickets for that will be going and sell their £10 this time around. But you're going to get us idiots. Uh, You're going to get some movie discussion and you're going to get some sensational uh, star guests he said crossing his fingers because we haven't booked him yet but we've got a month to do it so it's all good uh, so tickets go and sell next week check the Prince Charles Cinema uh, website princecharlescinema.com uh, for further details and we will update you uh, when they go and sell so we hope to see you there it was great fun the last couple of times so do come along to that one right this week's question uh, it comes from Twitter and was delayed from last week's podcast for obvious reasons and it's from Bertie D Bertie underscore D who says in honour and this shows you how long ago he sent the question in in honour of a newly numbered year this being 2016 what's the best film with a year in the title and Bertie suggests <laughs> 2012 or Dracula 2000 so I saw this question <laughs> and I started thinking I went oh yeah okay think oh gosh yeah not many films is there a film with a, a year in the title? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. So I found, you know, a list online of of, of, of films with numbers in the title, and I was mm. scrolling through, thinking, yeah, I'm sure there's a good one. I'm sure. And then I got to 2001, and and um, and then it struck me, there is only one answer to this question: 2001, A Space Odyssey. That's pretty much it, isn't it? We can go yeah. home now. Yeah. That's that's it. Well, thank you for listening to the Emperor Podcast. <laughs> It's been a lot of fun. I don't, I don't know why it didn't hit me quicker when I saw the question. It just should just instantly be just like, you know, kind of, you know, stepping into a motorway and being hit by a car. It's 2001 a Space Odyssey. In the battle between 2001 and 2012, it's, mm. a, it's a close run, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, or, you know, 1 million years BC or yeah. 10,000 BC or, you know, or maybe you'll go for, um, off the top of my head, 1941. Yeah, 1941 versus 2001. I mean, you know, the Battle of the Ones. Mm-hmm. What about 1900? Eh. <laughs> 
right now Phil Desenio is not in this podcast but he's racing <laughs> somewhere his art house radar is triggered he's got no uh, uh, bloated bloated I, uh, I would say bloated bloated uh, not a fan alright uh, so you're saying 2001 <laughs> alright okay I, not... did a, I did a top three I did do a top three okay good because it's, it's 2001 and then I would say uh, number two I mean uh, please John you know feel free to, to oh yeah but feel, free, feel, feel free John feel free I'm sure John's just stored up some on rage about one of these films uh, 1984 which was made oh, in yes. 1984 and is an adaptation of the book 1984 <laughs> uh, which came with a Eurythmic soundtrack titled 1984 and then I would say at number three <laughs> Right, okay. Controversial. I actually would say 1941 because I have fond memories of watching it as a child. So, so hang on, your list of three. Yeah. You started at two and then you're going to number three. <laughs> no, no, 2001 is number one. No, I, I understand that. So you're, you're working out for number one. Yeah. You're an idiot. <laughs> Do it the other way around. Numerical. I'm doing numerical. So n- number three. And number three. <laughs> I think you've ruined this. <laughs> number three is 1941. Number three is 1941. Okay. Okay, I thought hard about this. All right. Okay. I looked at all the films that have years in the title, and actually I would I had to say I prefer 1941 to 1492. There so, was um, a bit of a trend in the new millennium of just naming things 2000. Do you remember when everything was just 2000? Blues Brothers 2000s. Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. It's not great, is it? It's not a good no. film. Dracula 2000, or sorry, mm. Dracula 2000 is, I mean, it's it's got Jerry Butler in it. It has. And he's, he's got, argh. But uh, Isn't not, it now, was it renamed Dracula 2001? In some I think oh, there's, there are a number of sequels. Yeah, you might be right, actually, in that one. I, yeah. th- I have a feeling it was, it, the release date was pushed back to 2001. <laughs> so they just said, oh, let's just call it 2001. Wow. That's that's a good one. Mm. I mean, in in terms of the uh, the grand tradition of Dracula movies having a year in the title, there is of course Dracula A.D. nineteen seventy two, which I would argue yeah. is better than your puny two thousand and one Space Odyssey because it has Christopher Lee going erg. Does two thousand and one A Space Odyssey have Christopher Lee going erg? No, but it has a monolith going. I fought in the war, you know. <laughs> I knew J.R.R.R. Tolkien. There's, there's actually not that many. There's uh, one Carl Weiss, 2046. There's uh, a 1969, I believe, which is Robert Downey Jr. and Kiefer Sutherland. There's 1776. Uh, there's ridiculous ones like 1492, Conquest of Paradise. That's not even a real year. Nothing happened in that year. That was worth, uh, <laughs> worth, worth noting. Um, and then there's really stupid ones like 10,000 BC and stuff like that. Interestingly, so it's Roland Emmerich was 10,000 BC and 2012. He was. Hmm. He was indeed. Hmm. He's like he's the master of both BC and AD. He, yes, he he loves his numbers. Hmm. So there we go. I think Dan has, in his inimitable fashion, stumbled uh, while covered in blood uh, on the right answer, which is probably definitively two thousand and one yeah. Space Odyssey. Um, and that that's that's that. Thanks, Bertie D, for your question. Uh, usually, when we do stuff like this, people then write in and go, "Oh, you forgot that film? Have at it." What have we possibly missed out? We've missed something, haven't we? But, uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 1968 Tunnel Rats, made in 2009. Well, there we go. Dan has actually done research on this, which is which is very, very good. I'm very glad. <laughs> very gratified. Uh, okay, so if you want to have your question read out on the Empire Podcast, we're on Twitter, uh, where we're at Empire Magazine, and you can use the hashtag. In fact, you should use the hashtag Empire Podcast. Uh, we're on Facebook, Empire Magazine, and you can email us, podcast at empireonline.com. C-O-M. Okay, so let's talk uh, some movie news now. What's been happening this week? Overnight, some very interesting release date shenanigans were going on. So, <laughs> Terminator, 
Genesis 2. We may never know how badly spelled the title of the next Terminator movie would be because it has been pulled, perhaps temporarily, perhaps forever, from the the, the, uh, the schedules by Paramount. Um, and they've replaced it with Baywatch. And it was going to come out on May 19th, 2017. And now is not. Is Arnold going to be in Baywatch now? I need your bikini and your surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, that could be it. You Problem solved. You never know. So, what, how do we? How do we? What do we think about that? Because well, the, the, the last one, Terminator Genesis, was was. Let's be honest, terrible. It's no surprise, is it? I don't think there could ever be a direct sequel to that film. I don't think it it really warranted a sequel. Mm-hmm. But it had a post credit sting or a mid, <laughs> a mid credit sting, you know, which which teased the sequel. So, I think John, I think you'll find that it a could have a sequel and B should have a sequel and C needs to have a sequel you've convinced me yeah. I can't I can't remember what the post-credits thing mid-credits thing what, what, what was oh, it I, I think I've asked this before it, it's so forgettable big, there was a big blue wobbly thing and something appeared in some rubble is that what it was pretty much okay I just I, I you know there's no guarantee that this won't come back onto the schedules in some form because it did well enough just about around the world that absolutely stiffed in the States if you can call 89 million stiffing uh, but we will um, because you know obviously in comparison to other Terminator films that ain't good but it didn't do well enough it seems I think I think they've they've taken the temperature of the room and they've decided that it's probably not the best and of course we, as we've discussed in the podcast before in the rights to the Terminator franchise referred to James Cameron back in 2019 so they wouldn't have a lot of time to further mess up the franchise, so it's probably a good thing that's happening. Probably a good thing, I would say. And I, I you know, I'd be very intrigued to see how the uh, the original stars of that movie feel this morning. Are they relieved? Are they sad? You know, maybe they were looking forward to making it again. Who knows? Well, it's a job. It was, you know, it's a job they've, that's gone. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, I'd be a bit, bit sad. Yeah, but then you could do something that you'd want to do, wouldn't you? Rather than just, you know, doing contractually obliged sequel. Arnie can finally do that 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 French subtitled film he's been wanting to do for years. Phil's gonna crash through the window any <laughs> second now. Yeah, or he can make more mobile strike adverts. Yes. On the App Store. <laughs> right. Uh, there's other big release date shenanigans, and this is bigger than Terminator Genesis. Why I started with that, I have no idea. But it's a, um, it's a warm up. <laughs> it's a warm up. Uh, Star. So Star Wars Episode Eight uh, is moving as I kind of predict. You're so clever, on Chris. Twitter? A couple of weeks ago. So the announcement was made on StarWars.com, uh, which I believe is the official website of the Star Wars saga. They haven't... There's no official statement necessarily, but they, they basically said it'll now debut on December 15th, 2017. Uh, it follows the extraordinary success of Star Wars The Force Awakens, which uh, is is now pursuing a Titanic and Avatar as the, the number one and number two films of all time. Uh, it may catch Titanic and its current trajectory. It doesn't look like it'll catch Avatar, which is very interesting. Anyway, it was the first Star Wars movie to premiere outside the, the traditional summer blockbuster window and smashed numerous records. It's the third biggest global release ever with 1.8886.7 billion. So, number of reasons it would seem if you can read between the lines for this. One, that they've clearly decided that December, that December is a, a, a big date uh, allows a movie to have a lot of legs. Probably aren't a lot of movies, I would imagine, in December 2017 at the moment, except for, at the moment, I believe Avatar 2 mm. is is uh, scheduled to hit around that time. 
that's going to be very, very interesting to see exactly what happens there. Uh, let me see. At the moment, uh, December 15th in the States, it's going to go up against Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. The week after that, we have The Croods 2, The Six Billion Dollar Man. There's an animation called The Lamb before that from Sony. An untitled Disney fairy tale uh, live action. That'll probably move because Disney don't want to go up against Disney. The Hugh Jackman musical, The Greatest Showman on Earth, will open two weeks after that. I imagine that's safe. And into November we go. So there's Coco, How the Grinch Stole Christmas animation, the first Justice League movie on November 17th, Thor Ragnarok on November 3rd, and Kenneth Branagh, uh, directing Kenneth Branagh in Murder on the Orient Express on November 10th. So Avatar 2 doesn't have a release date as of yet. I would be surprised if James Cameron got that finished in time for December 2017. So we're not, I think, going to see that Titanic Galactic face-off. IMDb is actually saying 25th of December 2017 for Avatar 2 yeah. I'd be surprised don't you think well, I, I, you know, you, you know, they haven't started filming yet he's just said he's finished the scripts they've got the casting process to go through then they're shooting if they're shooting back to back it's going to be a long process to yeah. get it all done in time for his films are often slightly delayed because they're such massive undertakings mm. um, so there's every chance it will get pushed back and that is such a huge sort of battle of the of the box office it would be a tricky one to okay I'm not sure the box office would survive <laughs> I think it could destroy cinema <laughs> cinemas would crumble but yeah. it's fascinating because again I've seen so many uh, articles in the wake of The Force Awakens success and of, and, and not the fact but the uh, supposition that it's not going to catch Avatar at the box office so Avatar which uh, you know is a movie I've read a lot of articles this, this, in the last few weeks going how is Avatar the number one film of all time it, and we've said this in the podcast before that it doesn't seem to have made a huge cultural footprint it kind of feels that there's not a huge amount of residual love for that movie so I'm fascinated to see what happens with the, with the sequel Do, will it become the same phenomenon that the first one was or will it just be another blockbuster it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because yeah, it's it's kind of the 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 noise around Star Wars. Obviously, you know, kind of, the, you know, the parents of today were the children of when the first trilogy came out, taking their children to the cinema to see this, and it seemed to be this huge kind of cultural event. And it's interesting the moving it back to December because actually it became inextricably linked with Christmas. You know, it, it was part of what Christmas was this year, at least in my mm-hmm. household mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. we were playing the Force Awakens soundtrack on Christmas Day and not and not carols but maybe that's just because we're weird whereas yeah Avatar just doesn't seem to have bedded in in the same way uh, you know the numbers are there and the film's you know great fun an amazing achievement but it you know no one's no one's dressing up as Na'vi or waving around the Navi equivalent of lightsabers, <laughs> whatever that may be. I can't even remember. Sticks, their that's tails, the, their sex tails. Their yeah. sex yeah. tails. Yeah. No one's waving their sex tails. <laughs> well, I mean, Chris does regularly, but you know, no one else is waving their sex their tails. Their USB tails. I'm, 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 I'm just fascinated to see what happens with that. And also, I think you're right. Star Wars is going to stake out Christmas now until mm. Kingdom Come, mm. um, because it's uh, 2016 is going to be this Christmas is going to be Rogue One, which is fascinating because it's the first Star Wars movie that isn't an episode. But but will it, without continuing the main story, will it have the same impact at the box office? We shall see. And then obviously there's the Han Solo movie, which they're still going ahead with, and mm-hmm. the, you know the the rumored 
slash threatened Boba Fett movie, which is going to come in 2020. Um, so it's, there's a Star Wars film, and then obviously Episode Nine, I imagine, will now stake out December 2019. Mm. But I also like this because, frankly, 18 months between episodes, even with different directors and different crews working on these movies, didn't seem like a lot to me. Um, so by giving Ryan Johnson six months extra to, to maybe rewrite slightly or to prep or to get the cast he wants and just to get it right that's a good thing and there's also rumours this week that Rogue One is undergoing rewrites and mm. reshuffles and you know whatever you need to do to get it right that's, that's what I and say it gives them more time to take on the notes that we give them in our podcast <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. I, right now, I think they're rewriting to uh, to make Lord Snoke Kylo Ren from the future, which I think was my idea. I think it was your idea. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And of course, there was the, the rumours as well that uh, whenever they cast the young Han Solo, whenever they find the actor who's out there, who has the charisma and talent of young Harrison Ford, good luck. They're going to put him in the Rogue One, which is interesting. But not as a massive part, just as a, hey, I'm Han Solo. I have nothing to do with the Rebellion. I think they should cast that dog who looks a lot like Harrison Ford that was going around on Twitter. Did you see that? I saw the cat that looks at Adam Driver. Oh, yeah, that was mad. They should really just recast the whole series with animals. Except for Chewbacca, who would be played by a human. (laughs) That's right. And they could call it Star Paws. There's other release date shenanigans. So now Star Wars has moved from um, uh, May 2017. Another reason why I thought it would move is because it was coming three weeks after Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and I just didn't think Disney would cannibalise itself in that way I gave I gave Guardians 2 three weeks to make a lot of money uh, which it will but you know this now extends its legs but they have moved another Disney film into that slot but I don't think it's going to quite cannibalise it in the same way so the fifth part of the Caribbean movie is now in May 2017 and Sony has now moved its Spider-Man movie with Marvel forward into July a little bit forward it was still in July but it's come forward by a couple of weeks uh, as well. So there we go. Excellent. How exciting. Uh, other movie news this week. That's not release date <laughs> oriented. You'd be delighted to know. So what's this about? Uh, a Laurel and Hardy movie. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's, it's Steve Coogan mm-hmm. as Stan mm-hmm. and John C. Riley as Ollie. That works. Yeah, I can yeah. see I keep, that. I, you keep, keep you know, going over in my head. I'm just, I think that works. So this is technically a biopic, but it's set in the sort of later stages of their career. Okay. Uh, in the 50s, I believe, uh, when they do a sort of tour of um, the UK in dance halls and... Vaudeville? Vaude- Work- Vaude- working men's clubs? <laughs> working men's clubs, vaudeville theatres, Bingo that sort halls. Of thing. And uh, they're not as popular as they used to be. The sort of shine has, has left their careers a little bit. So I'm getting the impression it's going to be quite a sort of melancholy sort of film... Um, obviously, there will be some comedy there, and these are two actors who have got lots of comedy pedigree. Um, but it's not as a lot of people have thought it would be a sort of Three Stooges remake where they are actually doing a Laurel and Hardy movie. I mm-hmm. think it's more about mm-hmm. getting to know the, the people behind uh, the characters. Um, so it could be quite interesting. Mm. I think it's got potential. Um, so it's not them, uh, like the Three Stooges movie from a few years ago, it's not them playing. It's not that Farrelly Brothers movie where yeah. they are actually just... Mm. Well, it was actually done with Lauren Hardy before, I think. I can't remember the exact year, but uh, it was called uh, Lauren Hardy for Love or Mummy, I think it was called. It was. It didn't get a theatrical release. Yeah. Um, Bal- Balky from um, uh, Perfect Strangers played uh, uh, Laurel. Balky? Yeah, Bronson, <laughs> Bronson Pinchot. Yeah. Wow. I can't remember who played. Who played? Tell me it was Hardy. cousin. Tell me it was cousin Larry. No, it wasn't cousin Larry. Oh. 
cousin Larry didn't make the make the grade. Um, I can't remember who played the who played Oliver Hardy, but yeah, that was just one of those just recreating it yeah. kind of things. Uh, that was the late nineties. No, this is not a remake, and probably quite right too. I think classic comedy is not something that you really want to attempt for yourself. You you want to honour it in a sort of more respectful manner. Hmm. And there's something wrong about it not being in black and white. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, it gives us an uh, excuse to revisit uh, all the classic Laurel and Hardy films ahead of the release as well. Um, something else I wanted to touch on this week. So, Len Wiseman, uh, Die Hard 6, or Die Hard Year One, to give it its official title, is still going ahead despite the internet. Um, and Len Wiseman this week has been discussing it a little bit. He's been talking about it. He's called it a prequel slash sequel. He said, I wasn't going to do it without Bruce. Uh, this being Willis. Uh, I'm not going to do it with Bruce being a cameo bookend gimmick. It's really working out the plot with the 70s having ramifications on present-day Bruce. It intercuts in a very fun, imaginative way with present-day John McClane. So it's going to be set on New Year's Eve, 1979, nine years before the events of uh, Die Hard, and it's going to show how young John McClane was forged in a cauldron of steel. And Wiseman's gone on to talk about it. He says, The character in Die Hard 1 comes in with so much baggage, emotionally, and experience. He's already divorced, uh, which we have corrected him on because he's not. Uh, he's bitter. His captain hates him. I think that's a more of a joke. And doesn't want him back. So what created that guy? We've never seen the love story when he met Holly or when he was a beat cop in 1978. Or when he wasn't fighting terrorists. That's very important to remember. This movie is just going to be basically an episode of Law & Order, isn't it? I don't understand. Why? Why? I think we've already said this in the podcast, but Die Hard is Die Hard Year One. Yes, like that's that. That is the origins film. We don't need to see any more. You, you know, demythologizing movies just make things worse. I don't think it adds anything. I think it takes stuff away. It could be. It could be great. It could be great. We're all sitting here going, crossing our arms and tutting on don't like the idea. But it could be good. It could. It could. It could. It could, despite all evidence of the contrary, be good. Well, it's an interesting idea of, of the events of the past impacting on the events of the present or something. Yeah. I remember a film that did that called Best Defence, <laughs> starring Eddie Murphy and Dudley Moore. <laughs> the scenes we see, Eddie Murphy, right, was in, it was kind of in, he was in the present and uh -huh. he was in a tank, a very high-tech tank, right? Yes. And it it kept it kept having problems, and he was he was in a war zone, and he was having hilarious problems with it. But then in the past, Dudley Moore is the guy who designed the tank, trying to deal with the design problems of the creating the tank. You mm -hmm. see, mm -hmm. and what was happening to Dudley Moore as the story unfolded for Dudley Moore with his tank designs? Every time there was a little turn there, it affected Eddie Murphy in the future. No. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so there was this whole build-up thing of. Is Eddie Murphy tank thing going to go completely wrong? And I can't remember, explode or kill the wrong people. I can't remember exactly what it was. But no, Dudley Moore solved the problem in the past and therefore everything was okay for Eddie Murphy and his tank. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but my worry, my worry is that, you know, the, the, the Die Hard 4 and Die Hard 5, uh, Die Hard 5 in particular, were, were terrible because... No one understood the character of John McClane anymore, and because they they just think, well, escalation is the answer to a Die Hard movie. So you have fighter jets and helicopters and all sorts of stuff, and John McClane acting frankly like he's not John McClane. 
so hopefully if they're going back to basics and they remember that John McLean should not be fighting terrorists before he fought terrorists uh, and they can make a nice back to basics movie which actually has quite you know realistic action and character development as we have become accustomed to from Len Wiseman mm. then I think and 70s you know, style grit Absolutely, seventy star grid. And I just want, I you know what, I want Bruce Willis back. I want him back. But he never went anywhere. He, he kind of did, Dan. I think, I think it's it's quite. You know, he has made nothing but uh, straight to video schlock for the last couple of years. And yeah. everyone was talking about how great Harrison Ford was in Force Awakens because he felt engaged with the material and he felt energized. And I. I, I love it when Bruce Willis feels like that. And it's usually when he works with a really great director like Wes Anderson. But hopefully, fingers crossed, he can actually be the Bruce Willis we know and love in this movie. So, we'll see. And just two last very, very, very quick things. Uh, <laughs> I was talking about Jack Reacher earlier on. And Robert Nepper uh, from Prison Break has joined the currently shooting Jack Reacher sequel, Jack Reacher Never Go Back, based on the 18th book. I'm nearly onto that in my reread, in which Reacher goes back. But it's called Never Go Back, Chris. But he goes back. But you're 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 ignoring the book. But he doesn't. No, I'm not ignoring the book. It's a book. It's, it's not like it's not saying never go back and reread this, Chris. It would be more specific oh. if we we're saying that. Oh. Uh, but well, okay, sorry. So I was Reacher confused. goes back to uh, he goes back to his to to his old unit in Virginia to meet a lady because he's Reacher and that's what he does. Mm-hmm. And uh, he gets embroiled in shenanigans and uh, he gets arrested and thrown back into the army and someone's trying to get him but will Reacher get him before they get Reacher yes <laughs> but it's going to be good and it's directed by Ed Swick and it's got lots of good people in it including Kobe Smulders and Thomas Cruz Maypother the fourth so uh, do keep your eye out for that one in October and Robert Nepper he's good at playing evil men and I'm sure he's playing an evil man in this what do we, what do we think about uh, what do we think about that news non-Reacher fans Yep. Good. <laughs> I actually really liked the film Jack Reacher. I liked the film Jack Reacher. I really enjoyed it. Um, I have only read one Jack Reacher book. Which one was it? Um, it was Tripwire. Okay. Uh, which uh, I thought was rather like um, uh, some certain reports of war, mm-hmm. in that it's mm-hmm. long periods of tedium mm-hmm. punctuated by occasional bursts of extreme fear and excitement. Tripwire is the third book in Lee Child's series which has currently reached 20 books and the 21st book Night School will be released later on this year uh, I, this has been an announcement on behalf of the Lee Child <laughs> <laughs> Night School isn't that like a Jump Street sequel isn't that like 27 no. jumps yes it is but uh, this one we'll see how Reacher got all that book learning that people that he surprises people with like for example in book 19 personal uh, he goes at great length uh, to explain the origins of Boots the Chemist. Now, you may be wondering, how does Jack Reacher, a major in the American army, know so much about a British pharmacy chain? <laughs> well, hopefully in high school will tell us this. I, I, I do think it's hilarious, as is the, the, the character of Jack Reacher, he's actually an incredibly boring man. <laughs> he, I, I, love, he, I kind of love the fact he's, he's a bore. I mean, you know, it, it, it's absolutely he's just kind of... There's... there's there's no spark to him in terms of his personality, and he just drones on about he stuff. Doesn't, he doesn't drone on about stuff. <laughs> he 
He's not boring. He has a very specific outlook on life. He has three different approaches to showers. I wish I had his position. <laughs> he has the uh, 11 minute shower, the 22 minute shower, and I think the three minute shower, which is just in and out. The 22 minute shower involves washing his hair twice and, uh, and a shave. That's not boring, John. <laughs> Anyway, I've only read one book. I've only read one book. You've read them all. So, you know, I defer to your greater uh, obsession. (laughs) Okay, good. Uh, Also, we should probably talk about the Suicide Squad trailer, which came out this week. Mm. Um, I know it's always difficult to talk about trailers on podcasts, but um, I I, I liked it a lot. So did a lot of people. I mean, however the film turns out, I thought that was a great trailer. I Mm -hmm. thought that was so well edited. I think Bohemian Rhapsody is a brave choice as a piece of music for a trailer but it worked because it's why so because it's because it's so well known and it's it's such a a huge operatic tune you need a visual to match and i think they pretty much matched it i thought it was very um entertaining i'm i'm excited for this film now yeah i still haven't quite escaped the feeling that there's four or five different movies going on in this in this film but I know one thing for sure. The movie starring Margot Robbie is going to be dynamite. Yeah. And she looks absolutely amazing as Harley Quinn. Yeah. Um, I think it's it's possibly... It's difficult to say because we haven't seen it yet. Uh, but as well cast as most of these comic book movies are, for the most part, um, that seems like the perfect marriage of character and actress. Uh, so really yep. looking forward to Suicide Squad. Hmm. Yeah. I like that little moment in the trailer with Jai Courtney as Boomerang or Captain Boomerang I can't remember mm-hmm. what they're calling him in the film mm-hmm. in the middle of in the middle of some action scene or something having a swig from a tinny yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just you know I just thought maybe I'm finally going to see a Jai Courtney performance which is actually charismatic I give you Jack Reacher actually you know you're right you're right Dan if you spend enough time with me I can always bring it back to Jack Reacher <laughs> that's, that's okay. my that's my great time. so let's now take it away from Jack Reacher and talk about Adam McKay. Yeah. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Let's have a guest. Uh, That's enough of the movie news nonsense. So Adam McKay, one of our favourite filmmakers, uh, he's making his second appearance on the podcast uh, with a movie that represents something of a change of pace for the man who directed, of course, both Anchorman movies or, if you're being pedantic, uh, as Jack Reacher might be, all four Anchorman movies. Uh, He also directed Step Brothers and The Other Guys. Except if you think about it, it really isn't a change of pace. The uh, the Big Short tells the tale of the financial crash of 2008. It nearly brought the world to its needs, but it's just as funny and sharp as we've come to expect from McKay. Uh, I spoke to him just before Christmas when he came into London before uh, the Oscar and BAFTA nominations that have come his and the film's way. Enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined on the Empire Podcast by Adam McKay, writer and director of The Big Short. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you for having me, sir. Well, a little, little jet-lagged, but it's great to be here. Well, jet-lag's fine. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, you've been going around the world with this movie, or uh, have you been mainly... The last time I saw you was in London. It's been a, a weird tour. For some reason, we're mostly in uh, Central Africa and Madagascar <laughs> is mostly our junket. And then Burma. We've been in Burma for like a, a month. Uh, no, we've been going all around. We've been all around the States, uh, back and forth, London. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I think eventually we are going to do a little bit of Asia mixed okay. in there as well. So it's been busy. So the, the, the film itself, I mean, you've, you're doing something now you've never done before, which is you're part of the... Oscar Rice, congratulations on the Golden Globes nominations, which, ah, is, which is amazing. Thank um, you, sir. What is that like? What's that being inside that, being inside the Oscar race? Because we have outsiders. We have this image. Uh, it's uh, a, a carnival of flesh pressing 
and meeting people and oppressing them and shaking hands and doing a lot of schmoozing. What, what, what is it actually? It's a lot like the party from Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what it is. Um, it is... What is it? It's it's a lot. You know, here's what's so funny. Like, you know, we do comedies. Obviously, I've done tons of comedies. And when you do a comedy, you do two days of a junket and a premiere in New York City. Mm-hmm. Then you fly to London. You do two days of a junket and a premiere and you're done. <laughs> this is. And then maybe you do some radio and yeah. some long lead press, you know, before all that. This is just day after day, week after week, screening after screening, interview after interview. Thank God I love this movie. That's all I kept saying. I was joking with Robin Woolley, my co-producer. I was like, if we had made a really like so-so movie about an 18th century Romanian peasant Mm -hmm. that was just kind of okay, I think I'd just say like, screw it, go see it or don't. But uh, fortunately, we do love the movie. And fortunately, it's a very meaty subject. So I'm not bored talking about it, which... That's a big bonus. But yeah, it's a lot of stuff. It's a uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of screenings. That's mostly what it is. And a lot of Q&A's mm-hmm. uh, and cocktail parties after the screenings. OK. Yeah. Okay. So the Q&A's presumably have the same questions over and over and over again. Not you know, it's nice. Are they OK. Uh, no, this is a meaty subject. It's, yeah. There's a lot of ways to go with it. So we've actually had some fascinating conversations and fascinating Q and A's. We did one last week, and afterwards, a woman came up to me in tears and told me she was a whistleblower at Lehman Brothers before the collapse, who was fired. Wow! And said, "Thank you for this movie. Uh, I don't feel like I'm alone." And I was like, "Whoa! That did not happen on Step Brothers." <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so no, no. It's 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 actually quite enjoyable. The conversations have been really good. That's great. So no one in Step Brothers came up to you and went, "Thank you, really, thank you." I've just bought toilet roll for the first time on my own. I'm I'm so happy. You've really just shown me the way. Uh, mostly, they came up to me and said, "I still live with my mom. Uh, will you sign my face?" Yeah. <laughs> Before we get back to the big short, but you have uh, you have influenced real life before with other movies. I mean, Step Brothers uh, has brought about now the, the fucking Catalina Wine Mixer. I mean, there is. That, that, that event will happen. Is that it? that event is has it happened has and happened. will continue yeah. to happen, which is unbelievable. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Anchorman movies did nothing to improve the quality of broadcast journalism in America. <laughs> they all just laughed at it and continued to do stories about animals. Yeah, and people walking into houses uh, illegally and whatnot and so on and so forth. Um, but the film itself, The Big Short, is, is fantastic. And I just want to know how you sat down to write the screenplay. A screenplay did exist uh, already. Is that, is that less correct? Yeah, I came into it, uh, you know, obviously I haven't read the book and just thought the book was just crazy fantastic. Read it all in one night and thought, oh, my God, where did this come from? I knew Michael Lewis was a good writer, but I felt like this was his, you know, his great, great work. So when I contacted Plan B and told him I was interested, you know, God bless him. They were interested. They weren't thrown by the fact that I was primarily known as a comedy guy. In fact, they were aware of some of the political writing I had done and mm-hmm. some of the activist work I'd done. Um, Jeremy Kleiner is a, a massive consumer of information, so he, he knew a lot of that stuff that I had done. Um, and they told me they had a script, and I read the script. I thought it was a pretty good script, actually. It was Charles Randolph wrote it, but it, it was a closed narrative, and it, it it scared the studio a little bit, too, because it didn't 
sort of embrace the contradictions, the fact that these guys made money, the fact that are they heroes? It kind of got a little bit caught on those rocky shores. But fortunately, I had this idea, this idea of opening up the movie, of of breaking the fourth wall uh, and and giving it energy through that and and calling out the contradictions of it uh, in in more of a conversation with the audience. So uh, God bless Plan B. They were open to it, sort of an ambitious idea, and and they let me take a shot at it. Uh, Michael Lewis's book has many different characters, many different points of view, and it's very, very dense. It's very funny, but it's very dense with information as well. Uh, How did you take that book and decide, A, which characters you wanted to follow, uh, and B, uh, how did you craft, for example, conversations that happened in the movie from, from the book? Uh, you know, you know what I did was I, I in reading the book. I mean, it really felt like the groups that are in the movie. You know, mm. Doctor Burry, the uh, Mark Bomb's real name is Steve Eisman, and Jamie and Charlie with with Ben uh, Rickard, Ben Hockett, really felt like they were the core of the book. I mean, that's who we were really following. There were many other characters, but a lot of them felt like they orbited that central story. You know, there's a great chunk about the president of AIG that I loved. I wish I could have gotten in the movie, but I couldn't fit it in. (laughs) It's a story about a bond trader who lost a lot of money. There's a lot of little peripheral side stories, but definitely the backbone or the the connection between these guys and the train of information of realizing that this housing bubble and these toxic assets were out there. So that part wasn't so hard. I knew I wanted to follow those characters. as far as the information, as far as the choice to actually not gloss over the details of the collapse and actually get into the financial esoterica, that was where the breaking the fourth wall came in. And and what I did was I just read the book over and over again. I read it like seven, eight times. Uh, and then I talked a lot to uh, our advisor, Adam Davidson, uh, read a bunch of books, watched a bunch of documentaries, and I just kept digesting the information over and over again. And then I would practice telling my wife and my daughters what happened in the collapse (laughs) to the point where I could do it in like 40 seconds or a minute. And I had it very simple. Uh And then I would check it with our advisor, Adam Davidson, who's, you know, very reputable financial journalist. I go, am I wrong? Is this correct? And he go, I think you got it. I think you just told the whole story in a minute. So, (laughs) and what I realized was it's not that complicated. And I started realizing part of the con was that, there's a lot of very powerful, rich people who want us all to think it's incredibly complicated. And the truth is, it's not. And and that really ended up becoming one of the kind of central points of view of, of the movie. And Lewis had felt that way, too, in the book, that there was definitely part of the scam was that they made things seem way more complicated than they actually are. But mm. I think it got highlighted a little bit more in the movie. Absolutely. Was this a subject you were looking at already? I mean, it, a lot's been made of the fact that at the end of the other guys, you have... I guess was tantamount to a, a, a lecture, I guess, in visual form at the uh, over the end credits, which uh, which is an interesting departure from post credit stings where Simon Jackson comes in. Um, but uh, so this is something that's been on your mind for a while. So if this book hadn't come along, would you have wanted to tackle the subject anyway? You know, we tried to tackle it with the other guys. The whole movie was constructed to be a comedy parable of the collapse and. What I miscalculated was that when audiences are laughing really, really hard, they don't notice those elements of the story. Mm. So the whole movie was built to be that. And then we had those end credits come on and people were so shocked by the end credits. I go, what do you mean? The entire movie's about this. <laughs> and 
And I realized like, oh, well, you know, we still made a really funny movie and, and the point of view is still in there. And I was still really happy with the movie. But no, I was not looking to address this subject again. I, I just purely took an interest in it because, you know, I've always been fairly politically active or, or interested. And uh, and I started realizing that 80 percent of politics are finances and economics. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, that's why they're making these decisions. I get it. And so once I realized just took an active interest and and started listening and reading and and watching more as just a curious person and uh never did i expect to find this book and to be you know to have it hit me like a bolt of lightning like this it was not on my radar i i was you know if anything i was talking to marvel comics you know i was talking to marvel yeah. studios about maybe doing a movie for them had a couple other ideas i was kicking around uh so this one kind of hit me out of left field um, the movie reminds me a, a bit of a great line from uh, Alec Baldwin's speech in Glengarry Glen Ross, get mad, you sons of bitches, get mad. Um, and this is a movie, I think, that, that correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's designed to engender anger in the audience about what happened, about the, the, the wool being pulled over our eyes in such, in such a way. Yeah, I, I, I think the there's no way to really arrange the facts of that collapse and the fraud that went on at the center of it, the stupidity, the uh, the the greed without being angry. I, 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 you know, maybe some of the CEOs and their PR people from the big banks could do it, but it, it's almost impossible to arrange it without anger being a part of it because it's so absolutely disgusting what went on and so destructive um, that the second you get into it, you, you definitely get mad. I mean, the one time I think I did sort of push the accelerator a little bit was in the end when I did the thing about it. And they all got arrested and broke up the big banks. <laughs> Just kidding. I twisted the knife there a little bit. I will admit it. But but other than that, it's, you know, you meet these real people and, and they're still the, the real main characters are still in shock at what happened yeah. and, and absolutely gobsmacked that no one went to jail. I mean, we did a screening for a bunch of uh, financial journalists, economists, hedge fund people. And actually, Mervyn King was there, you know, the former yeah. head of the Bank of England. And uh, we went around the table afterwards. And these are pretty moderate people. These are not big left wing people. And I asked the whole table, I said, what shocked you most about the uh, the after effects of this collapse? And every single person said that no one went to jail. They couldn't believe it. So, yeah, it, there's there's a built in anger to this story, no matter how you slice it, especially once you really know what what was going on. But our goal is really just to restart the conversation. I, I, I think a lot of people can't believe the conversation stopped, at least in the United States, that yeah. after 08, everyone just went, oh, well, that's done. Yeah, it's it like, feels very much like, oh, well, we're, we're, we're still OK. Yeah, we're still fine. It's OK. Everyone went back to normal. Right. Yeah. I, I, is, is, does it feel like that here as well? Yeah. Very yeah. Much so. Kind of crazy because it isn't over and it's still yeah. going on. It's still affecting all of Europe. It's still affecting the whole world. And there are still many effects yet to come from what happened. And, you know, uh, uh, many people argue is much bigger than the Great Depression. The only thing is, in this case, we actually knew a few things we could do to mitigate the effects. But um, so, you know, at the end goal, obviously, yes, people should be a little angry. But but if it just starts conversations, if it yeah. just gets it back in the mainstream in some small way, I would be overjoyed. With the movie as well, you have this multi-character structure and you follow real life by not having the characters meet or overlap. As you say, Christian Bale stays in his room the entire time, stays in his office. Uh, was there a temptation to try and engineer a situation where they all come together? There's one, there's one shot really where Bale and Carell kind of hand over to each other a little bit. 
You know, it's funny. Charles' original script did have them all kind of intersect at one point. I actually took it out. Okay. Um, and Charles wrote some great stuff in the original script that I kept, which is why we share credit. He's a hell of a writer. But I actually didn't like it. I, I thought it was too clever. I, 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 uh, I like the fact that they're all unified by the system they're dealing with, by the ideas that they're dealing with. And even though you don't see them in the same room, it feels like they're in the same room. And, and I, I thought that was so cool that we didn't need to see them all walking down the street, slow motion, reservoir dog style. That, <laughs> that, and yet they all felt so connected uh, in the story that, that I kind of loved that fact. So I actually backed off it a little bit. Did that mean that it felt in a way you were directing three or four movies in one? It, we described it exactly that way when we were shooting it. It was really strange. We had Christian Bale show up for about 10 days. We shot all of his stuff. We had our own location. We had different actors like Tracy Letts and supporting actors. And then we said goodbye to Christian and it felt like we had completed a movie. And then, boom, you had, uh, uh, trying to think the next batch, Steve Carell came in mm -hmm. and he had Hamish Linkletter, it Rave Spall, Jeremy Strong. And we went to their location the guy who floated through it all was Ryan Gosling. He kind of connected a lot of it. But then we had Jamie and Charlie, John Majero and Finn Whitrock with Brad Pitt. And that felt like its own world. Um, it was kind of cool. It definitely did. It actually helped a lot in the shooting because each story had its own different tone. So it let me really focus on the kind of different energy, the youthful exuberance of Charlie and Jamie. Mm -hmm. I always describe them as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And then Carell and his guys are sort of like Jason and the Argonauts ready to like battle the world and then I always viewed Burry as like the oracle in like his office listening to uh, Pantera and Sepultura yeah um, so each story had its tone and it actually really helped the way we shot it uh, you're quite a, a very improvisational director I've seen you uh, work on set you have a you know, microphone or megaphone sometimes you'll you'll suggest lines to the actors uh, an alt for them to, to maybe to maybe. by start. the way specifically it's a microphone not a megaphone it is a microphone it is if a it's microphone. a megaphone I'm a dick <laughs> what if you're in a different room that's, that's the kind of thing yeah it is a microphone fair enough uh, with Christian Bell who's a very insular very uh, inward looking character did you do that with him or was it very much? I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. I talked to him beforehand and I, I talked to him about what he's comfortable with. I told him I like to use a microphone, but I don't yell. It's always very low and conversational. I don't use it a lot. I do like to improvise a little bit. And I just told him, I said, well, you let me know if there's anything that crosses any comfort zones. And he was fantastic. He loved it. And so, you know, the great thing with Christian Bailey shows up. He is the character. I mean, it's amazing. He doesn't make you call him the character's name, but like... <laughs> It's just he just slips into this character and he's never out of it the entire time you're shooting. So every take is usable or interesting or amazing. Yeah. But yeah, I would use the mic in kind of a gentle way to maybe prod or push or, hey, can you try this a little bit? And and then other times I'd just get up and walk onto the set and we'd have a full conversation. So it was a little bit of a mix. But, uh, um, you know, the only thing is once that that camera's rolling I let him get the moment, and then maybe towards the end of the moment, I might come in on say something. Um, okay. But every actor is different. You know, with Carell, he doesn't mind at all. Carell and his guys, I, I basically could be in the scene with them, sort of talking to him. But uh, you kind of feel it out with every person. Fantastic. Adam, pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Total delight. Anytime, <laughs> my friend. Excellent. Thank you. Cheers. All right.
He's a very, very cool dude, Adam McKay. Very mm. smart guy. Have you listened to his podcast? It's really good. I really want to. Surprisingly awesome. It's, yeah. It is surprisingly awesome. <laughs> yeah, he was telling me all about it, and I was mm. going, mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, okay, so let's start the review section with the uh, the big shorts. I talked about it a little bit already. Jane Huge. Yes. So, as we've just heard from Adam McKay, this is the big short, directed by Adam McKay. It is based on the book called The Big Short. <laughs> it is a, a non-fiction book. Uh, it's, it's based around the financial crisis of 2008. And we're sort of following roughly three separate story strands, all around the same narrative. Uh, it is quite sort of scattershot structurally. Um, it's quite ambitious. But it starts with Christian Bale. He plays Dr. Michael Burry. Uh, he's quite eccentric. He has a prosthetic eye. He has a mild form of Asperger's. Uh, he wears shorts and flip-flops. He listens to death metal. Basically, you don't, isn't he? I don't have a... Pros- I can't even say it. <laughs> I don't have a... Blah, 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 eye. But Michael Burry is very, very good with numbers. Uh, he's amazingly good with numbers. So he somehow this manager of a huge investment firm. Uh, he's given huge amounts of money to deal with. And what he decides to do is uh, bet against the market. He realises the housing market uh, is incredibly unstable. This is sort of in the mid-2000s. Um, and he realises that most houses are based on subprime mortgages, essentially mortgages for people who can't afford them. Uh, and the market is about to collapse, and so he bets against it. He bets that it will fail, and eventually it does. He doesn't bet against it in terms of he doesn't pop down William Hill. He goes No, no. He goes to this, major banks. This is this is betting on a huge scale, on an industrial financial system scale, um, yeah. and we're talking about millions of dollars of people's uh, investments, essentially. Mm-hmm. And this sort of sets off a chain reaction, and other investors pick up on this. They realise that there is a bubble, that, there, there, that something is going on. So we have Ryan Gosling, you have Steve Carell, uh, Brad Pitt, a few others, all realised that, that a collapse is imminent, that a recession is about to happen, mm-hmm. and that they can basically make a bit of cash out of it. And for a film that is about, you know, the financial industry, it's incredibly boring, that world. It's dealing in concepts that nobody really understands outside of that world. And yet this film is brilliant fun. It's hilarious. It's fast. It's pacey. It's funny. It's somehow really fascinating. The way they explain the concepts with these brilliant cameos, I'm not going to spoil them, but they are fantastic. It really takes you out of it, and it it does explain it in in a very simple and entertaining way. I Mm. still don't really understand what the hell they're all talking about, to be honest. No, yeah, it's one of those things, it's it's very ephemeral, isn't it? You you understand it when you're you're watching the film, and you understand it when you're reading the book. It's a very, very good book by Michael Lewis, who also wrote Moneyball, so check it out, it's very funny as well, the book. But then, you understand watching the film, but if you got me to explain to you right now how the financial system crashed in America in 2008 using Jenga blocks or not uh, I couldn't do it quite frankly but the movie does a very very good job of taking the unpalatable concepts and making them palatable and it seems to be very timely as well because we're on the verge of another huge crash which I think is going to be even worse than the one in 2008 so hooray Damn. for that hooray, hooray for humanity no, right no, now my down it's covered in blood um, <laughs> Yes. No, yeah. it's all it's all going south, guys. No, the movie's very sobering as well. I mean, you know, it it's 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 very very funny and very scary as well. It 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 becomes more serious, much more serious for the last 15-20 minutes. I I really really liked it. I thought it was fantastic. It's it's funnier than I think McKay intended initially. 
I don't think he was intended to make an out-and-out comedy, and he hasn't. Um, but it is very funny in places, and the interplay between Ryan Gosling in particular is uh, is in an out-and-out comedy in this one. Uh, Steve Carell is not. Christian Bale is in his own movie. What's, what's interesting about this film is that it, it's asking you to root for people who are <laughs> benefiting, profiting from people's... Um, uh, failures and disappointments and from people's lives being ruined essentially uh, but it does a very very good job of it I think the characters are very well sketched very well performed this film really works for me across the board but yeah it's it's as scary as it is funny there is a there is a killer line from Brad Pitt his, his <clears throat> sort of protege investors are celebrating a big win and he mm. just tells them uh, 40,000 people die when unemployment goes up by 1% which is just heartbreaking and you, you suddenly realise the impact all of this has it's not just mm. you know fun and games this is like people's lives at, at stake here. yeah the key line from him is uh, don't dance yeah because they're dancing yeah and he says don't don't dance yeah um, which is good life advice as well mm. um, but yeah it's I, I think it's fantastic and you can see why you would look at it it's, it's people might bracket it with The Wolf of Wall Street it's not quite as misanthropic as that film it's not quite as stylish as that movie but it has different aims different goals and it achieves them just as well and I can see why it's in the Oscar BAFTA shake up I'm amazed that uh, Adam McKay has an Oscar nomination now and this is the man who once directed Will Ferrell to places prosthetic testicles on a drum kit and now he's in the Oscar race well he should have got an Oscar nomination for that he should have I mean that was Mm. that was a snub that took balls quite frankly (laughs) because frankly Anchorman 2 should have won an Oscar for Adobe the best original song so this is this is right in a wrong this is right in a wrong four stars then for the big shorts let's move on now to our brand is crisis David Gordon Green's film starring Sandra Bullock and Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, Dan. David Gordon Green's an interesting filmmaker because he's kind of he started off with very sort of sincere, serious kind of indies, and then started doing crazy comedies. And he's sort of now sort of settled on the midway between the two extremes with with Our Brand Is Crisis. It's a political satire. Weirdly, it's actually based on a 2005 documentary about real events, where an American spin doctor was hired by a Bolivian presidential candidate in 2002. Uh, In the film version, uh, that spin doctor, Calamity Jane Bodine, see what they did there, is played by uh, Sandra Bullock, who is on her, you know, usual brilliant form here, kind of very charismatic, very engaging, you know, does good pratfall. At one point she moons, although I suspect it was a body double. (laughs) <laughs> I don't I don't think we were seeing Sandy's buttocks. I believe it was, yes. And so she goes down to Bolivia, but she's kind of she's retired and she shut herself off from that world and that she's coaxed out of it for this job. And of course the reasons she's retired and the reasons she's kind of shut off get gradually revealed during the film, so it's a character piece through that. Uh but the thing that coaxes her out is her old nemesis, a guy called Pat Candy which is a very Coen Brothers character name, uh, played by a very Coen Brothers character actor, Billy Bob Thornton, uh, is on the other team. For the most part, it's a very enjoyable political comedy. You kind of got her and and Billy Bob sort of pulling pranks on each other and slipping each other up, trying to sort of, you know, edge ahead in the polls against each other. Uh, It's a bit screwball in places. But then it kind of has lots of serious elements to it. It has a subversiveness to it. It has a seriousness to it. You know, it's kind of about what does it mean to win? If, If you're in this kind of a race, what does winning actually mean? Do you win if you win? Do you lose if you? It's it's a, it's a, it's it's kind of complicated on that front. It's it's not the easiest of 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 sales. It hasn't particularly been received well 
by critics broadly. Uh, our reviewer, Damon, gave it four stars. I would personally mm-hmm. go closer to three. Mm-hmm. But uh, that is, as Chris likes to say, still a something or other recommendation, I think. Was a recommendation. A recommendation, that's a the recommendation. one. So it's, it's worth checking out, especially if you're, you know, if, you, if you're into Sandra Bullock. There you go. Your brand is crisis, Dan. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> that's all right. Last up this week is the Taiwanese movie The Assassin, which made a splash at the Cannes Film Festival last year. Danforth. Well, yeah, this is a this is a really interesting one. It's uh, directed by Hu Xiaoxian, and it's a wuja movie, you know, martial arts, wire work kind of kind of genre. And this is not his bag at all. Normally, um, uh, Kim Newman, who reviewed it for Empire, made a really good analogy. He said, in British terms, it's a little like Terence Davis making a western. <laughs> so, you know, I think that perfectly sums up kind of how surprising it is. Now, this is absolutely... I mean, this is beloved by critics, and as Chris said, it was um, uh, it, it won an award at Cannes. But I will, I will supply a caveat, you know, as, as kind of, you know, dumb blockbuster guy kind of thing, even though I'm not really. But, you know, if, you, if you're kind of... If you're expecting some kind of elegant, balletic martial arts film like House of Flying Daggers or Hero, it or ain't... Raid. <laughs> or the raid? No, that's a different kind of film. Oh yeah, uh, it ain't. It's it's like I'll give you an example. There is a one the one one action scene is an absolutely colossal sword fight with loads of people going mm-hmm. at each other with swords, right? And it's shot from the other side of a lake, and all the people fighting are obscured by trees, and you can't see what's going on, and it's over in about thirty seconds. And then the next scene has nothing to do with the action scene. And the scene before has nothing to do with the action scene. So this is one of those acquired taste things, okay? It will require patience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'll I'll just say, don't go in expecting, whoa, wall-to-wall action and and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. But it's absolutely beautifully, elegantly shot. Um, It's kind of abstract. It's very much a mood piece. It's very much an emotional piece. I mean... There's not really that much of a plot, but for what there is, I mean, uh, a uh, a princess is set in the ninth century, the Tang Dynasty in China, and so a uh, a princess sort of returns from kind of exile. She was sent away, and she was raised by a sort of renegade nun who taught her in the ways of assassination, you know, ninja stuff. And she returns, and she's been tasked with murdering her cousin right so that's that's the plot but it doesn't really you know it's it sounds like a tight thriller it's not there's there's lots of long monologues in it and you're kind of watching things sort of like shot through a veil as the camera drifts in and out from behind the veil and someone's telling a long story and yeah it's so it's 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 i'll be honest it wasn't really my bag oh damn however however do not ignore the critics including our own go check it out it is a funny one this one because it has sort of divided people uh, from what i've heard a lot of people come away thinking this is amazing i know one rival publication of ours uh, named it the best film of 2015 mm. which is interesting no, no. Um, especially because it's released in 2016 yes i mean no one tells sight and sound what to do <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've, I've equally heard as many people like you dan say it's just and you know Maybe a bit boring. I d- is that a, is is that a slightly sort of uh, is that a philistinic 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 
approach to this film? I don't know. It's a, it's, it's, it's a funny one because at the end of the day, you know, we're always talking about something which is ultimately completely subjective, mm. you know, and you can, you can only go with your gut emotional response to these, to these things. But at the same time, you know, we all, we on Empire, we operate in a, in a context where you can't just ignore what people, other people think, as I say, including our own film reviewer here. So I actually uh, will revisit it. Um, not because I think I was wrong necessarily, but it's, it's always I'm always interested when I kind of go out of step with what other critics think and think, okay, well let's come back to it maybe another time. You know, maybe I. What just... if you're right and they're wrong? What if they should be well, coming into step with you? There is no right and wrong. I mean, and also uh, Hugh Shashen is uh, you know a very well respected uh, filmmaker, and he's he's what he's done here is he's taken a completely different tack with this genre he's done something completely different with it and that's always to be applauded to approach things from a different direction to examine them differently and that's totally what he's doing here so okay. um, and I, I, I think I think for me maybe it was uh, uh, you know an expectation thing you know I, I, I love the heroes and the crouching tigers uh, um, so I, I just need to kind of right revisit knowing what I know now there we go uh, four stars then yeah for the assassin yeah Dan may not entirely concur I think that's clear. Hmm. But uh, four stars for The Assassin, which is a mega recommendation. And that is pretty much it for this week. Also out uh, this week is the Chloe Moretz sci-fi young adult novel adaptation, The Fifth Wave. We gave that two stars. And we don't have a review yet of Ride Along 2. Uh, sadly, the Ice Cube, uh, Kevin Hart, uh, cop, comedy, buddy, cop, thriller, sequel thing where this time they go to Miami um, first one we gave two stars I liked bits of it I like I think Kevin Hart's very charming and very funny and uh, they're good together and I would expect pretty much the same this time around but we don't have a review yet so um, uh, check the website for that I think it was only screened to critics last night and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast uh, join us next week for more formulated fun we'll be joined by the great and newly minted Oscar nominee Mark Ruffalo who'll be here to talk about his new movie Spotlight until then it is goodbye from John cheer goodbye uh, it's goodbye from Dan farewell sir <laughs> and it's goodbye from me I'm off to expose corruption in a small town drink lots of coffee elbow some punks in the head and sleep with beautiful women or I'm going to read about Jack Reacher doing it instead uh, which is which you decide Jonin said nothing fair enough see you next week bye 